Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Everyone's life is driven by something. What drives your life? Many are driven by things like guilt, resentment, anger, fear, materialism, and the need for approval. There are other forces that can drive your life, but all lead to the same dead end, unused potential, unnecessary stress, and an unfulfilled life. Now, the Bible has a remedy. St. Paul said to the Ephesians, Don't live carelessly, unthinkingly. Make sure you understand what the Master wants. And the Master himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we meet now in the Archbishop's Corner where Archbishop Leonard Blair helps us think life through and search out the truth as we find the right way to faith. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for sharing some time with us in the Archbishop's Corner. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's a new year, and uh, we ask God's blessing on all of us to uh, make it a fruitful and healthy and uh, joyful year. Well, this is our first program in the new year. How has the new year been thus far for you? Uh, fine. Very good. Um, we've not had any blizzards in Connecticut, uh, so that's not slowed us down in any way. And I think, um, knock on wood, things seem to be going pretty well. Well, today the church is celebrating the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, and this brings to an end the Christmas season. The church recalls our Lord's second manifestation or epiphany, which occurred on the occasion of his baptism in the Jordan. Can you talk a little bit about why Jesus himself was baptized and the importance of it? Yes, well, if I could back up, though, for a moment, uh, put this in a little bit of liturgical uh, context. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we know perfectly well that uh, Christmas ends uh, for most people in the civil uh, order on uh, already by evening of December 25th. You know, the That's shopping true. malls are already uh, ready for Easter and the 4th of July. Uh, but the church, <laughs> uh, the season... You know, it's it's always that thing of the fast before the feast, Lent preparing for Easter, and then the prolonged celebration of Easter, and Advent preparing for Christmas with a prolonged celebration of Christmas. And, of course, uh, Christians in other parts of the world uh, celebrate a lot on Epiphany, January 6th. You know, our auxiliary Bishop Etancourt, his family is from Puerto Rico, and the Three Kings feast is a very big celebration in Puerto Rico. Uh, and many other countries as well. I remember, in, remember when we were students in Italy that the Bafana came to give gifts right. on January 6th, not December 25th, with Santa Claus. So there are different traditions. But anyway, the point is that, uh, as you rightly point out, the, feast, uh, the, the season of Christmas for the church doesn't end with a little child in a manger. It ends with the baptism of Christ in the Jordan. Uh, because these are not just historical remembrances of Christ's earthly life, but they are mysteries of faith. And and so this little child is born on Christmas, now becomes, uh, makes his epiphany. Uh, epiphany means manifestation or a showing forth. So it start, it's, the church compresses the, um, uh, the manifestation before the uh, magi, that he's shown to the non-Jewish world as the Messiah and Lord, Savior of the world. 
And then uh, the other epiphany, of course, is the um, is baptism when the uh, uh, with the, the dove descends uh, with the voice of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, in this case, not as a gift, because Christ already is uh, the eternal Son of the Father, has the Spirit. But this manifestation, again, this showing forth for our sakes. And then there's another one, too, that we don't uh, commemorate liturgically every year, but it's the wedding feast of Cana. Mm. That at the and you know some of the old hymns for Epiphany talk about those three things, namely the wedding feast. Remember, this is Jesus tells Mary, "I is not I, my hour is not yet come," and yet at his mother's prompting, he performs this first public miracle. It's the beginning of Christ's public ministry. It's his Epiphany, his manifestation. Now at an even wider, deeper level before the, the the people and 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 what he's going to accomplish. So all of these things. You know, it's, there's there's a historical understanding of the gospel, which is certainly valid, that this happened and that happened, the other thing happened in the progression of Christ's life. But there's also the theological, spiritual symbolism or, or truth that's conveyed by this epiphany, this, this showing forth of Christ, and the church tries to capture that. So I've given a very long introduction to your, your question about the baptism that we're celebrating, but it's in that context that we can understand it. And I think it's important that we realize the three epiphanies as the manifestation of Christ in terms of the, the first time when they realize the, the importance of who this baby is, and then at the baptism, and then at his first miracle in Cana. So I, I think all of these reveal a little bit more of who this Jesus is to all of us. Yes, and like I say, we don't speak of this as often as perhaps we should, but there's the one Epiphany hymn uh, that that does talk about these three things together, and the Church considers them spiritually and theologically uh, uh, together. This Thursday is National Religious Freedom Day. Freedom of religion is considered to be a fundamental human right, of course, and for so many people around the world, finding religious tolerance is increasingly a matter of life and death. Christianity is currently the most persecuted religion in the world, Now, on the Sunday before New Year's, a gunman opened fire in a Texas church, the city of White Settlement, killing two people and injuring others before two heroic parishioners shot and killed him at the scene. The day before, a man entered the home of a New York rabbi during a Hanukkah celebration, stabbed five people with a machete in a horrifying attack labeled an anti-Semitic act of domestic terrorism. There were at least 13 anti-Semitic incidents, including beatings of Jewish people in the streets of New York City and a massacre at a kosher grocery store in Jersey City, New Jersey. Governor Cuomo said, this is violence spurred by hate. It is mass violence, and I consider this an act of domestic terrorism. People should be free to participate in their religion, live their religion without fear of terrorism or intimidation. Can we get your thoughts on these incidents, Archbishop? How do you view them, and and what should we be thinking about them? What should we be doing about these acts of domestic terrorism, these acts that go against freedom of religion in this country? Well, in some respects, it represents the unraveling of the civil order because— uh, and it's deep-seated. It's not just about uh, external things. It's about it's tied to everything. It's tied to mental health, which is tied to a family life, which is tied to the stability of a marriage and a home. Uh, and we have a lot of people today who are drifting through life rootless and uh, who are do, do not have the 
um, the, the cradle of, of uh, a family and social order where they can uh, be at peace. I mean, there have always been people on the margins, mm. but it seems to me that this is increasing for the reasons that I've stated. And that's why I call it an unraveling of the social order. Uh, social order is, and there are exceptions, of course. Sometimes there are people who do these horrendous things who come from a family where the, the people, you know, are just in despair that their child would do such a thing that they, you know, but they became, they came under other influences then, uh, psychological, emotional. Um, and, you know, the other thing too is that it's it's a spiritual disorder because when people are people of faith, now there are exceptions. There are cases where religion can be used for a kind of fanaticism that attacks other people. There's no doubt about that. But uh, 99% of the time, and always in the case of authentic, true religion, there, this is not part of how one uh, relates to other people who are different or relates to other religions. And to the extent that uh, this violence has become part of a a way of life for some people or this their mental state is is such that they and their access to uh, lethal uh, weapons and uh, whether it's guns or knives or whatever what scares me a little bit more than these specific incidents that make the headlines frequently are the those incidents of anti-semitism that are harbored in the heart of people that don't make headlines and don't cause people to act out on their feelings, but nonetheless their hearts are such that they are hardened against people for no reason at all other than the fact that somebody might be Jewish. Can you speak to that? I find this utterly uh, mystifying to me that when you think of, I mean, I understand historically and even from a certain point of view of religious history, the source, origin, and, and development of anti-Semitism in, uh, in the world. But all that the Jewish people underwent in, uh, under fascism, you know, and the horrors that they were subject to, you know, for a while there we thought that people, you know, in, in compassion and understanding would put aside any, any kind of particular irrational prejudice against Jewish people. The, in recent decades, of course, it's been fueled in the Middle East by the political and social unrest and conflict in uh, in uh, the Holy Land in Israel and in the Middle East, and that has in that in that case politically and socially, people have sometimes developed a dislike for uh, the policies of Israel or they feel that they are oppressive, and that is a matter of uh, debate, but that is not a basis for harboring some ethnic or religious or whatever you want to call it, racial prejudice against any people. And I do find it kind of shocking, especially that in the United States we should see a resurgence of this. Because I think that, you know, the people who are perpetrating these acts are not doing so because they are claiming to, to champion the Palestinian cause or something like that, you know. It seems to be a more visceral kind of social, religious, ethnic, whatever you want to call it, uh, prejudice. And, um, I think, you know, Orthodox Jewish people do have ways that set them apart from the the general run of things, but so do Catholics. Yeah. I mean, that is for Catholics who are practicing their faith. I I just don't. I I think this is a terrible thing, and it 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 really is diabolical that that any group or nation of people should be attacked, you know, just because of their ethnicity or what or whatever. 
Are there any ways that, that you can think of that religious persecution can be stopped? First of all, I'm not sure it's religious persecution in the United States in as much as I don't know that these people carry out these horrible attacks uh, uh, because of the biblical religion or the, the you know the, cere- the, the rituals or, or ceremonies of a of a of a synagogue or something like that. It seems to me that it's more on the level of a cultural, social, ethnic uh, thing. At least that's my Im- impression, my sense, and. Uh, I think that the remedy for that has to be the remedy that applies to all of us, the same remedy that would apply to somebody that would uh, be prejudiced or hateful or attack Catholics uh, or Protestants or or Muslims or anybody. We have to try to reaffirm in the strongest possible way fundamental values of our our society and of our culture of the United States about uh, religious pluralism and and ethnic uh, diversity. Uh, and I think that's that's what we all have to work at. Well, let's now take a look at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine some of the wisdom of Pope Francis that's drawn from the Pope's writings. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and then we'll ask you, Archbishop, to comment with your own thoughts on what Pope Francis has said. This is taken from Pope Francis's address delivered on August 15th of 2014, and is called, Christ is knocking at the door of your heart, knock on the doors of your brother's hearts. The Pope says, Today Christ is knocking at the door of your heart, and my heart too. He asks us to rise up, to be awake and alert, and to see only what really matters in life. What is more, he asks you and me to go out on the streets and the roads of this world and knock on the doors of other people's hearts, inviting them to welcome him into their lives. Archbishop, your thoughts. Yes, well, this uh, is a beautiful image taken from the book of Revelation, you know, where uh, Christ says, I stand at the door and knock, and to the one who opens, I will come in and share a meal uh, mm-hmm. with that person. Some years ago, uh, when I was bishop in Toledo, it was the year of faith that Pope Benedict had proclaimed, and we had a prayer card, and I chose for the illustration the painting of Christ knocking at the door. And the artist deliberately had uh, a door depicted that had no doorknob on it, and the idea was that it could only be opened from the inside, that on a knocking on our hearts, uh, Jesus uh, seeking to come into our heart. That's a re- by faith, of course, for the year of faith. That's a beautiful image. It is. And uh, Pope Francis here, of course, is taking it up uh, further to say, and to the in as much as we let Christ into our heart, then we have to also. Uh, to go out and to uh, bring him to other people uh, by knocking on the door of other people's hearts, inviting them to welcome Christ into their lives. But it's a, it's a great thing, you know, the beautiful image of, of spiritual intimacy that Christ promises to, to those who believe. You know, if you read the Gospels carefully, uh, especially the Gospel of John, you see this, about this intimacy that Christ seeks with people who are his disciples. You know, today in the world, it's sad that we hear these surveys of Catholics who say they don't feel they have any personal relationship to Jesus Christ, Mm. by which I think they mean that they think of Christ as exterior to them and that, you know, about the faith and who he was or what he did. But they don't don't have that mystical, profound, inner spiritual uh, link to Christ, or at least I would take it by their answer that that's what they mean, uh, of him 
uh, fulfilling those words of the book of Revelation, that he enters in and shares uh, intimacy with us in our in our the very apex of our hearts and minds and souls. And today being the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, I wonder if we can connect to this, what the Pope says, because he says, go out on the streets and the roads of this world, knock on the doors of other people's hearts. Isn't that our responsibility by virtue of our baptism to do just that? Yes, Christ's baptism in the Jordan by John the Baptist is uh, the inauguration of his ministry, of his going forth at the beginning of his ministry, uh, sent by the Father in the Holy Spirit to go forth and fulfill the mission that he was uh, that he came into this world to fulfill, and so baptism for us likewise is always being sent out on a mission. And Jesus says, "Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." And in other places too, the New Testament is filled with this sense of mission, uh, of discipleship, of going out to make other disciples. It was the, it's the great theme of our Archdiocesan Synod at a time when so many people are falling away from religion, not just Catholics, uh, but, but so many Catholics mm-hmm. too are falling away from the practice of their faith. When young people are claiming at an early age that they no longer believe in God because science explains everything. Uh, this is where uh, uh, this sense of our baptismal mission uh, has to come to the fore. And of course, uh, baptism and confirmation are sacraments that are intimately linked together. Uh, the confirmation of the gift of the Holy Spirit Uh, that we received in baptism to go out and be courageous witnesses to Christ. Well, let's now take a look at our gospel reading on this Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, the 12th day of January. And today's reading is from Matthew's Gospel, the third chapter. After the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, and ask for your thoughts. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And lo, a voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Archbishop, what are your thoughts on this gospel? Well, I've already expressed some of them in uh, what we were discussing a moment ago before the reading. But I think um, uh, what to me is, uh, maybe I would add further, is the final words that a voice came from the heavens saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You know, this uh, great mystery of the most holy trinity, you know, that one God and yet the three divine persons um, in, of one God, uh, this relationship that, that even God in his very self, a very being, is relational, not just mono, but relational. I think that's a tremendous uh, thing uh, that, that goes through the whole universe, all of creation, and that certainly... Uh, transfuses, if that's the right word, or, mm. or permeates a human personhood, you know, that, that we are all in, in uh, we, are, we are made for a relationship and ultimately made for a relationship of love and communion and intimacy uh, with God and in God with one another. 
Because what is heaven, you know? Heaven is not each of us doing our own thing for eternity. It's being totally, completely immersed in this uh, magnificent communion of being with, with, uh, with the Holy Trinity and with one another. Is there anything that we learn from the baptism of Jesus that should influence baptism as a sacrament that the Church celebrates today, for instance? Well, not to be crass about it, but uh, sometimes the most basic things cannot be taken for granted, and that is that baptism is by water, and it is in the name of the Holy Trinity, Mm -hmm. the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, sadly, uh, various ideological uh, things have overtaken some people over the years and, and, uh, you know, tried to substitute the names of of the Trinity for the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier, and things like that. Those are not valid. Uh, That's created a problem in our ecumenical relationships with some uh, churches. I don't know if that's still the case, but it was for a a while, that uh, we we cannot recognize the validity of that. Uh, because it, 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 these things are not just uh, arbitrary, but they are the revealed names of of God, and uh, so I think for our own practice of baptism, we should be we have to be very respectful of the liturgical forms that come to us that have been revealed. Well, let's take a look now at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners, and uh, this one comes from Angie from Waterbury. And Angie said, I never understood the baptism of Christ since he is sinless and born of a sinless mother. Can you explain? Well, that is why, of course, uh, St. John the Baptist himself said, uh, I should be coming to bapt- for baptism to you, not you to me. Yeah. But what did Jesus say? That all might righteousness might be fulfilled. That Christ is not baptized for the forgiveness of his sins, but he is baptized uh, into his mission uh, and baptized as uh, a sign of uh, the, a new order of baptism in the Holy Spirit that will be conferred uh, when the Holy Spirit is given after the resurrection uh, in, in the outpouring of Pentecost on the Church. Now, I, I don't want to ignore this question, although we've spoken about it a little bit uh, previously, but maybe you have something to add. This question comes from Jim from Hartford. And he says, we've seen many media reports regarding anti-Semitism, locally, nationally, and internationally. As observant Catholics, what is our responsibility to our Jewish brothers and sisters in helping to eliminate the discrimination and stigma that leads to such violence? Well, our responsibility in this case is as it is in combating all discrimination, unjust discrimination and prejudice against human beings, and uh, I think what the Church, you know, has, um, um, since Vatican II in particular, has since the Second Vatican Council, has done a great deal uh, to foster relationships with our brothers and sisters in the Jewish uh, faith and who also have uh, promoted this kind of thing for, for all people throughout the world. And I think that we have a pretty impressive record of that, but that's not to say that it's been entirely successful because we do live in a fallen and sinful world and we have to keep striving. My experience has been that uh, Catholic people, practicing Catholic people who go to church, I find they have a deep interest in Judaism, and and they should, they rightly yeah, should, yeah. because uh, all of our faith, you know, as... Uh, uh, the scriptures say we are we are grafted onto the the ancient uh, olive tree of our of our Jewish roots, 
you know, when I was a pastor in Detroit or when I was, I was ecumenical officer in Detroit as a young priest, I found that my parishioners and Catholic people that I encountered were very interested in visiting a synagogue and having the rabbi explain uh, Jewish customs and, and such. Now, obviously, we believe that Christ is the Savior of the world, uh, and we pray not... Uh, one Jewish person told me once, you know, he said, we, we don't mind being offered this uh, faith, you know, that you, you say that, that you believe Jesus is the fulfillment of our hopes and the, the hopes of the uh, promises of the Old Testament. But that's very different than belittling our Jewish faith or trying to force us, you know. And that, of course, that's, that's absolutely true. As Pope St. John Paul said, uh, the work of evangelization is never to impose, it is to propose. Yeah. It all has to do with, with how, what respect we have for people where they're at and their beliefs. And needless to say, we should have the greatest respect for Judaism because it is of God. And it, it, Jesus, Mary, the apostles, everybody are all Jewish. Uh, so it's not a repudiation of Judaism. It's a fulfillment. Well, this item has appeared in the news recently, and I'd like to get your take on this, Archbishop. The United Methodist Church appears to be splitting after the Judicial Council, the church's highest court, declared the consecration of a gay woman as bishop was incompatible with church law. The schism is drawn along the dividing line between those who want to normalize same-sex relations for both clergy and in marriage, and those who seek to uphold the traditional view or marriage and gender roles for clergy in the Methodist Church. Now, the new conservative traditionalist Methodist denomination would not allow gay marriage or gay clergy members. What are your thoughts about this issue fracturing Christian churches in modern times? Well, it's one of those things that... um continues to uh, plague uh, uh, churches uh, uh, in Protestantism uh, because, um, you know, the, the, the doctrinal authority and the tradition and such and teaching uh, can lead to uh, splits. Uh, now, the Catholic Church is not immune from people uh, breaking away uh, because they no longer believe what the church uh, believes and teaches. Uh, but when that happens, it's more of a definitive break than having another branch or having a two, two separate uh, wings of, of a church. Uh, because we believe in the, in, uh, in th- that what the church believes and teaches is true uh, and uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But I will tell you that uh, these tensions are increasingly great for us too. Yeah. And as much as I know, there are many Catholics who think that if something is legal, it must be moral, or that uh, if a culture evolves, um, that we just have to accept it, uh, or to say that compassion for people who experience a homosexual uh, attraction means that we have to accept uh, things like uh, uh, homosexual same-sex marriage or all this. And for us as a church, it is a very challenging role to have. Because on the one hand, we have to be true to what we believe and teach about this as Catholics. But at the same time, we have to find our way compassionately through a society in which these things just become ordinary, commonplace things. Uh, That they're just part of life and people accept it as being, because it's legal, it's moral, and that's the end of the story. So uh, I don't, for a moment... uh, minimize the challenge before us. But I, there is no way that we are going to, as a church, that we can 
simply say that all of these uh, social changes have to be accepted as being uh, um, morally uh, acceptable to, to us. Well, Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord, as we enter a new year of 2020, we enjoy many blessings and we also face many challenges as individuals, families, society, as a church. And we pray that in an ever-changing world, we may always be faithful to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of Jesus Christ himself, God incarnate in the flesh, baptized and sent into the world uh, for our salvation. And we pray that we may be faithful to our baptism through the gift of the Holy Spirit that we too have received. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next Sunday at 7 o'clock in the morning and with a repeat at 11.30. And until then, we hope you enjoy this week. Thank you. Thank you.